Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 1st, 2018, and my guest is Anat Admadi, the George G.C. Parker Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, where she is also director of the Corporations and Society Initiative. This is her third appearance on Econ Talk. She was here most recently to discuss bank regulation in April of 2013. Anat, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. Our topic for today is the financial crisis of 2008. We're in the 10th uh, year uh, anniversary of that. And we're also going to get into, I hope, the role of the financial sector in general and I hope also some corporate governance issues. I want to start with what you've learned personally from that crisis, if anything. As some people have said, there was nothing new there. Uh, I wasn't surprised. I didn't learn anything that I didn't already know. That isn't true for me. I'll talk in a minute perhaps about what I've learned, but I'm curious what you, who you're in finance, so what has what did that experience uh, either get you to reconsider or get you to learn about that you didn't know about before? Oh, I mean, it changed my life. I mean, it, it taught me so much. I can no longer be be what, what I was a decade ago. What was, what was uh, it that? Woke me. Well, I mean, I basically realized I lived in a in a sheltered bubble that uh, involved many, many false assumptions. I was working on the wrong set of problems, not on the problems that matter. I was um, uninvolved in um, in policy, and that changed. Um, so. Everything from my teaching to my research to my activities professionally, uh, everything has changed about my my career trajectory. I'm still a professor at Stanford, but uh, I talk to different set of people. I think about different set of problems, you know, related, but, you know, and as an economist, but now with them much out of my silo. So the, the bubble you mentioned, what was the the nature of that and, and what, what had to be reevaluated once you saw what had happened? Well, I mean, in, in one word, assumptions, implicit assumptions, things we take for granted. I just didn't know there were so many of them were wrong. Uh, assumptions about markets, uh, assumptions about financial market and the financial sector, assumptions about uh, politics, um, uh, you know, assumptions about about people and um, and sort of almost this sociology. Um, even ethics of people, all kinds of things like that. So give us some examples of what you believed beforehand that you no longer think are true. Well, I mean, in research uh, 10 years ago, you'd find me, um, uh, my, you know, uh, the topic I was interested in was uh, was already corporate governance. And there, the problem that economists and law and economics people obsess over is entirely the problem of how uh, of the sort of manager shareholder conflict because clearly we believe uh, the purpose of corporations is to uh, you know in the Milton Friedman language make as much money as possible uh, you know subject to the rules and ethics he adds uh, and in the way we teach it in corporate finance to basically maximize the stock price uh, and that's what I've been teaching in corporate finance class and so the only issue is you know you have dispersed shareholders in especially in a public company how do they monitor managers you know those kinds of things activists shareholders. So I wrote a paper uh, on with Paul Flyder about uh, large shareholder activism. We've written a couple of papers on that. Um, you know, the free rider problem of monitoring, things of this sort, voting. You know, I had students working on corporate governance. And I never also looked at, at, um, at financial institutions as corporations. It was very general. And I realized that um, when you say that the purpose of the corporations is to maximize uh, 
stock price or make as much money as possible or ever you um, you frame that uh, that purpose there are implicit assumptions there that uh, that are just false in reality and certainly false in the reality of, uh, of financial institutions for example uh, implicit assumption there is that uh, you know markets free markets are competitive that and especially that um, that somehow the contracts and the rules of of the game, the rules of society as embodied in the law, and to use the language of, Mar- of Milton Friedman again, uh, are you know there to ensure that um, that other people impacted by corporations, uh, for example, you know, customers, employees, uh, the public uh, as a whole are protected somehow, you know, that if the, uh, that, you know, everybody can have a, a contract except for the shareholders and therefore the shareholders should be the focus uh, of, uh, of what corporations, uh, who corporations uh, strive to get, whatever that actually means. And again, unpacking who the, co- who the shareholder is, uh, you know, it's as if, a shareholder is somebody who only owns that one share and cares about the wealth that they uh, that they get from this from the the ownership, meaning the stock price. So all of that embodies a lot of assumptions. And uh, when you start, when I started looking at at banking, and when I emerged out of that deep dive uh, into uh, the banking sector and the and financial crisis and what happened there and the narratives around that, I realized that, uh, especially in banking, but also more broadly, these assumptions are wrong for one thing because, um, you know, contracts uh, are often imperfect and, and costly to enforce and require uh, you know, a lot of uh, they are, are complicated and there are all kinds of clauses you can think about, you know, mentor arbitration or the way the legal process is costly or monitoring to to, to, to sue or legal costs uh, of, of the different sides. And because the laws are themselves a part of a political process in which uh, corporations or certain people in the economy um, have a voice and the voice even in a democracy is not um, is not it does not necessarily bubble up the most uh, efficient uh, set of rules, and so you can have a failure of the rules, and the failure could be a, a sort of feature, not a bug, of the way the rules are created and enforced. And so, you know, the financial crisis, if you want to get into that, it really represents that that kind of failure of markets, contracts, and rules. And um, that's not always the narrative you'd hear from the people who, you know, prefer other narratives, but that's where you can see, you know, uh, what people will say and do um, in their own interest if they can get away with it. Well, I think it's an interesting way to frame it. I don't, in many ways, I agree with every word you just said. Uh, I guess in other ways, I I'm not sure I agree, or we'd have to, let's take a little deeper. Okay. Um, As I see the, I learned something similar, but I was different. I wasn't paying much attention to the financial sector as a non-finance economist. I always viewed finance as something over there. You know, that was something, Mm -hmm. it was a specialized thing. It was a very specialized part of the economy. And I was very unaware of the way that the fingers of that industry reached into all kinds of places. And I also was unaware of what the failure of those firms would do to the economy as a whole. So, you know, I like to make the analogy with the dot-com struggles at the turn of the of the century when a bunch of dot-com companies that had great hopes, those hopes weren't realized, those companies went broke, the investors lost all their money, every penny, and uh, – it was unpleasant for a bunch of people who worked in those firms, but many of them, of course, were able to find work in other firms that didn't go broke. And there was no macroeconomic consequence, at least that was measurable or, or widely observable or obvious from that failure. When the financial sector had a meltdown, uh, the whole economy seemed to collapse. Uh, people went crazy. Uh, people panicked about whether society could survive even, that people might not be able to get their cash out of their ATM machines. And uh, it it provoked a set of responses that were wildly different from the dot-com struggles. So what's the difference between the two? And one of the differences – well, you go ahead. You go ahead. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we give that example also in the book that you interviewed me about five years ago. Um, exactly asking that question. Why was the financial crisis so harmful? And um, in comparison to uh, to the dot-com collapse, which uh, just to set it up more as a contrast, uh, that um, dot-com collapse involved a lot more sort of paper losses, what you were just referring to, meaning the collapse in the value uh, of um uh, of certain of certain uh, uh, companies, uh, in, indeed, their their demise uh, in many cases. Uh, in the financial crisis that started with subprime defaults, the underlying losses were actually much smaller, um, and yet the harm was so large. And and what it is about, uh, a lot of it was about the nature of the system, indeed the reach of the system, and and uh, and the fragility and opacity of this system, um, the way that it controls important sort of infrastructure like the payment system related to whether your money is in the ATM, uh, and and the way it became uh, so global and so connected, and 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 then so incredibly fragile and and that that fragility creates all these contagion uh processes that did not exist in the dot com which was just a contained system with where equity values dropped here you had equity values dropping in a very highly indebted uh chain of highly indebted companies that uh where their counterparties really quite weren't quite uh, sure how to analyze who's who's really sound or not and and that created many mechanisms that you know in our book we call financial banking dominoes uh, to describe it and so we agree on that and we certainly agree that I know we both agree because I've interviewed you twice and read your book the the role of leverage of borrowed money uh, yep. as opposed to equity and just a quick review for listeners, in equity, you own a stock. A stock can go up really, really high, and it can go to zero. With with uh, debt, you get a fixed return, but presumably the odds of going to zero are very small. You get your money as long as the firm doesn't go bankrupt. So the idea, at least on paper, is that debt is a little bit safer, and you give up some of the up, you give up the upside for, to have the lower risk of the downside. Yeah. And yet, um, all these firms and all these investors and all these uh, players in this game, it lent enormous sums of money, taking enormous risks of, of a possible downside, knowing that the firms that they were investing in through their their lending had almost no skin in the game, almost no money of their own, very little equity, which normally would mean that you'd be very nervous about giving up the upside and accepting uh, – uh, a lower return for a smaller risk of the downside. In fact, the downside was quite uh, likely in those cases with such small amounts of skin in the game, small amounts of own money. And I, when I look at the that fragility that you're talking about, I notice that Wall Street went in a very short period of time from a partnership system where people spent their own money to a world where they spent other people's money. And of course, that's always fun. It's more fun to spend other people's money. But the question is, how do you get those other people to invest in you? And I think that's the question. Okay. So let me explain. Um, first of all, think of just basic banking. And that's really where um, you know you get from banking and then to investment banking to, to kind of universal banks with everything uh, in them, the kind of you know big banks that we have. But even when you talk about, about the basic bank, which gets its funding from depositors, uh, first and foremost, you know, depositors are very special kinds of lenders. Uh, they, they don't even think of themselves as lenders. They may uh, give, I mean, and, and, and not only that, it really gets, you know, in the, in the banker's mind, um, especially by now with deposit insurance, you know, you can get, and I like to, use that quote to kind of explain to people how how ridiculous it can get the the ceo of wells fargo bank ex ceo at the time uh, a couple of years ago was uh, this is stumpf uh, uh, he said this in 2013 so shortly after our book came out um he said the following 
to a reporter, uh, we in Wells Fargo Bank, he said, we have a lot of retail deposits, or he called it even self-funding by deposits. That's my money, by the way. Um, yeah, yours, yours, and yours and mine. Yeah. And therefore, he said, now listen carefully, and therefore we don't have a lot of debt. This is what he said. Now, uh, you know, when I present now, I sort of put a big ha huh? on it. Like, what did you just say? You mean you forgot you owe me the money? I expect, <laughs> we expect this money to be in the ATM, right? And we trust that. But he forgot he owes it because he, he, it seems to him, it feels to him like, uh, like plain money. It feels to him like, uh, you know, and, and, and the reason is that we feel safe because of deposit insurance. We do not monitor him. We do not breathe down his neck. Okay. And, uh, and we are the nicest creditors in the whole economy. Even though, and we don't have any collateral, we don't have any safety there. We just have the safety of the FDIC. Now, as a result of that, as a result of that, what happens is the the in banking, banks can be, especially today with safety nets in place, um, they are they've they're forever, um, you know heavily indebted, although we can go back to history when they weren't before safety net uh, as, as indebted. But it, it, critically, normal borrowers in the economy, especially normal other corporations, but even the kind of borrowers to which the banks themselves lend, if they become heavily indebted, they feel it. You were just saying, you know, the interest you, you know, you, in, you invest in, in loans, you know, you basically start start having your lenders uh, be concerned with what you're doing with the money, with whether you can pay or not, they are going to uh, choke you so that companies that are very heavily indebted, you know, end up seeking bankruptcy protection or defaulting. Now, here's what's special about banks. Banks can stay insolvent for a very long time because nobody, you know, really calls them on it. Nobody because knows. <laughs> so this hidden insolvency, to my mind right now, I, you know, I have every reason to believe that many banks are either insolvent or very close to insolvency and nobody really knows it. And then when we panic, when we think something's wrong, then, you know, we see who's swimming naked in the language of, of Warren Buffett, you know, when the, when the tide goes down. So, so in other words, we live in this uh, make-believe where they, you know, they might even flaunt all kind of capital ratios and regulatory ratios or, you know, some kind of accounting number to me. But what I see is I see the symptom of um, of heavy, heavy indebted and distressed. There's no companies as indebted as banks. I mean, they have single digit equity in the in the in a good day uh, relative to total asset, and you know, and a lot of off balance sheet exposures that would not allow companies to actually survive in markets anywhere but banking, but they're coddled and, and they don't live in actual markets, which is how you can hear these ridiculous entitled things that they say. And then the somehow acceptance that that's okay for a company to live like that just um, because it can. So the insolvency, just to clarify this, if it, it very well may be the case that there are not enough assets Available yep. for the bank to, to pay, pay off its creditors, yep. but since we're not all asking for it at once, exactly. or even close, you know, I go in and make my hundred and fifty or yep. two hundred dollars. Notice, by the way, that they can take the excess deposit because they always have them because we we always leave extra money in the bank uh, and use use assets that they buy with them as collateral to get the next person to lend to them, and so you have then on top of the deposits a whole huge you know, high rise into the stratosphere of um, of debt funding where everybody feels safe. And to you, so that's how you get to borrow as much as banks under, you know, you get people to lend to you uh, and you get to live on almost no equity. And when you make money, uh, you, when you have profits, take the, the money out without any creditor screaming. So one way to look at that claim you've made, which I, I also I agree with, is that you're saying that just because everything looks okay, uh, means it, actually it's not. There's no reason to think that it's okay. In fact, because of the incentives in place, it's probably not okay, which means yep. that some uh, bump in the road, mm -hmm. uh, in the case of the housing crisis, yep. it was the 
drop, unexpected drop in housing prices that yep. forced the water to go down and people could find out yep. who was swimming naked. But that's coming potentially in some other market, exactly. some other. So you're just you're worried. Yeah, and I mean, right now you can read. I mean, there was just I was just looking at that story and saving some of the graphs. So now there we're talking about leveraged loans. I mean, if you go and look now, they're saying that there's huge, um, you know, there's a lot of what's called yield chase. You know, in the days of zero interest rates, you know, people want to uh, take risk, and so there is a buildup of of all kinds of risk. I mean, you know, I'm worried about cybersecurity risk, but there are other risks that come, and especially uh, we're back to the day of what's called leveraged loans, meaning you make a loan to somebody who's heavily indebted themselves, just like subprime own, homeowners were, you know, in other words, at big risk of default. And these are very um, opaque uh, loans. Uh, they're not like, you know, they, they overtook what's called junk bonds, actual bonds in markets that are rated and all of that. They're called leveraged loans and then they securitize them, very similar to the way they handled subprime lending. So now we have a huge increase in that to the levels that that are beginning to worry all the regulators. So if you read now, everybody's saying, oh, you know, this is where the risk is going to come from. I was just looking at a Bloomberg story literally before we talked, uh, which says the title is as as Fed to Oak Tree Fret risks, leverage loans hit new milestone. This is just a story from October 18th, and it has various graphs, and it quotes at the end somebody, Michelle at J.P. Morgan Chase Asset Management, saying there's potentially overextension of cheap borrowing. That's always what seems to get the system in trouble. And here you go, just on a you know on a normal day where we're you know looking at midterm election or whatever else, and we're not paying attention, and here's the risk building up. Same as it was, you know, 2006 was a wonderful year. And I often go through what the regulators were looking at and what the regulators were missing and all the measures that they were using that proved completely useless and and, and how all of a sudden, you know, panic hits. And if you listen to, to Ben Bernanke, you know, they pulled out all the stops. So if you read Adam Tooze now, you know, spectacular, you know, things were done to save the system. Yeah, well, I, I find those, to be honest, I find those um, very depressing and a little bit offensive uh, because yes. they, what they did is they, they, they enshrined the rules of the game that were in place to help make money for those folks. And uh, instead of questioning them, yep. instead of forcing a reassessment of what their role was in the problem being there in the first place. And so yep. I feel like my profession, I, know, I was going to say our profession, I don't know if, you, yep. if we consider ourselves in the same profession, but my profession of, of economists, not just finance, yep. um, have done a great disservice to the country in saluting Bernanke and others, Geithner, Paulson, for, for saving the country, when in fact – the mistakes that have been made along the way helped create the problem, and then to then cre- congratulate exactly. the people who started the fire for putting it out seems like a bad, bad exactly. Thing to do. And so when ben, you know when Bernanke wrote his book, you know the title. When I only knew the title of the book before it even came out, the cor- you know the the courage to act, you know this self congratulations, and then when you hear the narratives now, they brought back you know the, the the team, you know Geithner and Paulson, and and they were you know the heroes from the bunker, but they are starting the story for when from when the the implosion happened, and that's when they were heroes. And if you hear about the heroism, I mean, it was really unbelievable what they did to help not just U.S. institutions, but the entire you know because we're the reserve currency and because there was so much exposure to you know in dollar debt in Europe and other there was a select set of institutions, and it was selected even politically to whom the spigots were opened and the Fed, you know, beyond the government bailout themselves, TARP, et cetera, the Fed uh, was just, uh, you know, throwing trillions and trillions of, you know, they call liquidity to to prop up a, a system that they've allowed to become as fragile as it was. And then, so I wrote an op-ed at, at the time uh, called Where is the Courage? And it was really about the courage they didn't have before the crisis and since the crisis to really question, as you said, um, 
whether this system is 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 okay uh, and what can be done. They will have the story, yeah, 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 they didn't have enough equity and we figured that out and now we have more. But I mean, you know, the more is like the the smallest tweaks that means nothing. You know, the, the more is like in Martin Wolf's world, you know, tripling zero, which is still zero. You know, in other words, you know, you go from nothing to, to a little bit more than nothing and you call it 50% increase or triple or something like that. When you started with, you know, I mean, I don't want to get technical into these details, but I can speak to them. Uh, you started from just an, an unfathomable set of set of standards and you when you not tell me that it's stronger which is just you know is not asking the question is it the system we want is it as strong as it can be is it the right system does it continue to have the same Ill, ills that it had before so let's back up a little bit and let's talk about a couple of the things that i think are at the heart of the problem which you may or may not agree with but it's, you may so uh, I want to hear your take on it. So the, the FDIC, the insurance of deposits, mm-hmm. of course, means that I, as, as you pointed out, I, as the depositor, as the person putting money into the bank, I don't have to worry anymore about yep. about whether the bank's going to take too much risk with my money. And that, that worry gets transferred onto the federal government, which gets usually implemented via various regulations restricting how risky banks can be. For the yep. investment banks – there's no uh, explicit FDIC, but there is an implicit bailout promise of if things get really crazy, of course, we're not going to let you lose all your money as lenders because that will have too many ripple effects. That, of course, encourages banks to be very leveraged, to have very little skin in the game, as you point out, to have, say, 1% in equity and 99% borrowed. And then, so, of course, then they say things like, yeah, so the, the assets – Stuff happens. Assets have to be safe. That's what the whole – Basel uh, set of regulations about how much AAA and weights and how much of each kind you can have. And that whole um, hierarchy of that infrastructure of of supervision, monitoring, regulation, and implicit promise seems to me to be an utter failure. There's no reason to think that that's a good system. And I would just add, there's nothing to me to do with markets. It's not a market system. You have you have profits to be made and losses to be put on other people. That's just like the so, opposite of markets. Yes. And that's a destructive, inequitable and despicable and wasteful system. And that's what we yes. keep perpetuating. That's right. So so um Martin Howig and I who wrote a number of pieces on this recently sought to write Yet again, to explain uh, the following paper is called, you know, Bank Leverage Welfare and Regulation. And he basically says that the inefficiency of banking is is fundamental to banking. And it really has to do with, uh, with um, you know, they always say banking has always been fragile. And to which basically we're saying banking has never been efficient. At the start, you know, when banks were partnerships, and you mentioned partnerships, you know, and people who wanted to kind of have that liquidity thing, like they wanted to put deposits in the bank, um, you know, really demanded that the bank had 50% equity and that the owners of the banks were personally liable. It's as if Jamie Dimon had his assets on it, would insure his deposits with his own, you know, apartment in in New York or whatever. And, um, and then, but of course, then the banks had to be very small and, 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 you know, they couldn't, they provide as much funding for the state and for everybody else, and so. And then, but they were the last to become even limited liability corporations, and they were even, uh, in you know, they were double and triple unlimited liability in the U.S. even through the Great Depression until the FDIC um, was created. So, but so fundamentally, what you need is somebody. The, the, the you know the lender or the collective of lenders uh, or regulators to uh, ensure that the bank doesn't uh, do what it has incentives to do, which is to endanger the deposits and everybody else, um, and say, "Oops, sorry," you know, and then there is a collateral harm. So from the you know the, the problem really is that banking has never been effectively regulated, and the markets are con- repeatedly failing uh, because uh, you know it's hard for the bank to it's hard for a depositor to really know what the bank is doing. You know, going to yet another depositor and 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 sort of increasing the risk of default. And so you know we don't we kind of 
delegated that to the regulators. It's just the the, the, the minor problem that they are keep failing at at uh, and keep maintaining a bad system. So yes, I think that Basel, Basel, the way it was coming into the crisis was a spectacular failure, and I can just tell you how many things were wrong with it, and that that what they call a major revision was was really just tightening a few screws, but it really didn't didn't improve it that that much and um and it remains this game of uh of you know playing around with the risk weights and finding ways to increase you know to to kind of game it and this whole thing and putting it off balance sheet and and then you know what's called regulatory arbitrage this this uh this uh cat and mouse game that continues to go and that's because it's all so complicated and so so unfocused on 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 the right things and it doesn't ask the big question which is you know there's no science behind it for sure i mean every in the papers that they wrote to justify they're just completely flawed and we've been taking them on for literally a decade but yet you know they just keep saying these things they just keep doing these things i mean so you know you asked what i learned i learned that there's so much of this wrong stuff of bad policy that can persist. I want to go back to this issue of, of uh, the role of economists and, and, and academic business professors in this kind of uh, situation. And I'm, I'm going to be a little bit cynical. Uh, you could debate whether it's legitimate or not, the cynicism, but I'm going to, let me put it out here. It seems to me that um, everybody knows what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Uh, we're not alone. There's at least two of us, but I think there's a lot more than two of us that understand that there are many, many ways. I, I could say, well, I'd like to have a system with no bailouts and no um, uh, deposit insurance and therefore let all the costs fall on the people who make bad decisions. And that's a lovely thought. It's unlikely, but right. I, that's my that's uh, my not credible. <laughs> it's not credible right now. We don't have a cultural. No, no, and I think it. it's not even good. I'm, I don't even. I'm not even against deposit insurance and stuff. Okay, so that's fine. But mm-hmm. we, we we all understand that given given the current reality where there is deposit insurance and where there is an implicit promise of a bailout, even when we legislate against it. By the way, we end up doing it anyway. So yeah, we yeah. had. Uh, Fiducia, which is um, a way yeah. of dealing with bankruptcies that was basically short-circuited Prompt because corrective action, right? Yeah. Because we we can't just too risky. So that's all. That incentive is going to always be there when powerful people have a chance to be bailed out. They're going to get bailed out. So it seems to me that those of us who understand those incentives should call out uh, and say, "Well, given this reality, the only way to deal with this is to have very high levels of leverage." Excuse me, very low levels of leverage, very high right. levels of equity, which is what you've come out for. Yep. Now, that to me, you, it, you can debate, and I know you have, whether that's got a cost or not. I don't really care. The cost of it's small right. compared to the cost exactly. of the regular, the ongoing failures of the financial system that get yep. um, that happen and then lead to cynicism on the part of the public, correctly so, about how the system's exactly. rigged against the little mm-hmm. person and favor the big person. So – it's why isn't it the case that your colleagues and my colleagues who know this instead say Ben Bernanke did a great job and instead of saying uh, this whole system is corrupt, it's corrupt. It's not just like, oh, I think we have a better policy. No, it's corrupt. It allows a group of people – you can debate whether they should have gone to jail or not. I don't think there's that much criminal activity. But what they did was shameful. They, they took advantage of rules that they themselves had influenced tremendously – it's not just they played by the rules of the game. They influenced the rules. They made enormous sums of money, and the people who lost money were left with enormous sums anyway. So Jimmy Kane, the CEO of Bear Stearns, he lost a billion dollars, which sounds horrible, but he was left with $500 million. So it's not like he was a pauper after it was over. He was not a pauper. So the downside for these folks is, is glorious wealth that's beyond human imagining through most of history – and I don't understand – well, I do. I have a theory, but I want to hear your reaction. It seems to me that our colleagues should be out there saying there's only one way to fix this that's re- reasonable, which is higher requirements of equity and lower allowed leverage and get away from all this sophistication, which is a smokescreen about weights and, and, and sophisticated yeah. leverage rules. That's just nonsense. 
Well, I mean, this uh, this is this was what I thought. Uh, so when I told you my lessons, I told you effectively my deep disappointment that some people would speak up, but many wouldn't. So when I came in, that was kind of the obvious uh, thing I thought. It's not like it's a silver bullet. We still need to decide, discuss all kinds of disclosure yeah. issues and derivatives and other things. And there's, you know, there's a lot of consumer fraud. There's a lot of other things that we can talk about, you know, if we sure. get to corporate governance, especially in the in this kind of area. But uh but yeah, and so um, I wrote a paper in which I discuss, um, based on my many experiences engaging with people in various ways, publicly and privately, uh, from the across the system, the private sector, the policy sector, the people who did not want to engage, who did want to engage in what I learned. The paper is called It Takes a Village to Maintain a Dangerous Financial System. The 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 inspiration of the title was actually from at the same time that the movie The Big Short came out, which ends with a question people want to ask. And, you know, if you saw the New York Times 10-year anniversary uh, business section of the Sunday of uh, like September 15th or 16th this year, uh, it had a blank page for the 10th lesson and it had a complete list of all the executives that went to jail and the entire full page was blank and it said this page in, intentionally blank it was a, a very powerful so asked why people didn't go to jail and of course i'm asking about what was legal uh, i'm asking exactly. about yeah. about and and most of what that is described even in the movie the big short was legal so nobody would go to jail for that and so even beyond the question of of of, uh, of fraud which we can discuss why you know fault or other people that uh, where there was seemed to be some evidence of of of, of more fraud and others uh, ended up just settling and, and moving to comfortable retirement. Um, you know, what was legal was most outrageous. And so then what's the complete, so it takes a village in the movie Spotlight, which came at about the same time about sexual harassment of the Catholic Church abuse. in Boston. Yeah. Sexual yeah. abuse, abuse, sorry, abuse. We're talking serious abuse, criminal abuse. In the Catholic Church in Boston, and then it turned out in many other places where they were recycling these abusive uh, priests, uh, the lawyer uh, tells the reporter at some point, if it takes a village to raise a child, which is a famous saying, you know, in the title of Hillary Clinton's old book, takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse a child. And he meant people looking away, people enabling, you know, if you think now, of, you know, me to sure. a Weinstein or any kind of wrongdoing that persists, people are not speaking up or a lot of, you know, in history, obviously atrocities uh, that persisted, you know, with, uh, with people being afraid sometimes to speak up. Up about all this stuff. Well, uh, so why aren't uh, so I go through the enablers of the system, the enablers in the private sector, including the people inside the firms, the people around the firm, the private watchdogs, the credit rating agencies, the auditors, all of that, all the way to the policymakers, to um, to the. Um, the, the the people in government, uh, the politicians, and then, of course, the, the people who have some connection or sometimes are indistinguishable from the policymakers, like an academic like Ben Bernanke and others, and the media for, uh, you know, the toxic mix of confusion and sort of willful confusion. And I had to go read about, you know, all kinds of terms in psychology about willful blindness and moral disengagement and all of those things that allow people to kind of do harm and still feel okay about themselves. And so, you know, you've written to ethics and it does become ethical. And, you know, and I gave a talk here at uh, Stanford about lessons from the crisis in which I quoted extensively from Ken Arrow, who knew from the beginning that this was a big, the crisis was a big crisis to the, it was a big uh, uh, point to ask a lot of questions about the very system and indeed the very financial system with all these securities that he himself wrote about you know, back in the 50s. And he, I, I discovered just recently that Ken Arrow wrote an op-ed on October 15th, 2008 called Risky Business is saying this presents a challenge to standard economic theory. 
And, you know, asymmetric information is key precisely in the complex securities that standard theory called for, which is his theory. And he knew there was a problem right back then. And and he then was thinking about ethics. Well, in my ethics, in my enablers, I go to the academics and I see the kinds of things I discovered 10 years ago, which is completely false statement in a banking textbook by a big shot named, you know, Mishkin of all people, false statements, and then a whole slew of misleading uh, and flawed statements and reverse engineered models, which I can go on and on about into the night, by uh, experts, academics with clever models and all of that to reverse engineer why somehow what we see must be good because we see it. And it's a bias that they have that, you know, somehow what we see must be good and a, a sort of cultural, sociological attempt to uh, to belong to, to a system because it's more convenient. And, um, you know, when I stepped into it, somebody said to me, uh, you know, when a policymaker talks to an academic, they know what answer they want to hear. So they will talk to certain academics that, you know, tell them what they want to hear. Um, and the academic, he said to me, wants to feel important. <laughs> and so it was, I, from the start, sort of caused, call it the big shotness syndrome. And, you know, you, you get rewarded for providing the narratives uh, to people who find it convenient to tell the story in a particular way, such as to start the story from their heroism of saving a system that they were very much uh, part of and and, and, and tolerated uh, before and since, uh, and to basically say, you know, to us that, uh, you know, this system is inherently fragile and we got to put in place, you know, uh, the ambulances that would allow us to save it next time it implodes. So I'm going to make, read a quote from your um, a presentation you gave recently. It starts with a quote from Upton Sinclair, and then it, you have another a number of different uh, applications of it. The Upton Sinclair quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. Then you write, It is difficult to get politicians to understand something, to get a politician to understand something when his campaign contribution depends on not understanding it. And my footnote to that is that you know, my my cynicism grew after the 2012 election when Mitt Romney and Barack Obama uh, both had a chance to campaign along uh, some of the lines we've been talking about. They could have spoken out against the current financial system. Mitt Romney could Nobody have done spoke. it. Mitt Romney could have done it because here was his chance to show he wasn't just a rich plutocrat. He actually yep. had was going to say something that hurt his rich friends. And Obama, was coming from the left, could say it because he was yep. going to be representing the little guy, and that would have been great. And neither one of them said a word. Not yep. a word. It not was not a an word. issue in that I, campaign. I remember that election very well because I was I was writing the book at the time. And, uh, you know, and actually, interestingly, I was following who would ever say a word, not in the debate, not any time did it come up at all. Um, Should have been the single it, biggest issue of the campaign, in my and view. And it wasn't. <laughs> Sheila Bear wrote a book right around that time, screaming about this literally came the her, Sheila Sheila Bear's book came right before the election there was a book by Neil Borowski about the way the bailouts went yep. and 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 how much corruption there was in the way that tarp was was managed and um and, and and a few other other books of that sort and 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 of course our ours trying to scream uh, you know a bunch of academics and the academics you know there were twenty academics across the board that did sign a petition that you know that we sent to the Financial Times which by the way was moved in this into the letter section the next quote you were going to you know the last quote you were going to read was about the media and their incentives it's difficult and, to get a journalist and, and, to understand something when his access to news depends yeah, on that they understanding have access, they have ads they you know there's a whole layer of incentives there and our letter was pushed uh, into the letter section uh, and the next day there was a really stupid op-ed by pandit from city saying the same nonsense that we debunked uh, on the on the more minor pages so, uh, the day before. But anyway, what I was going to say uh, was that at the time in 2012, interestingly, the only one who said something about the big banks uh, and how unhealthy they are and how there would have to be something done about them was actually Paul Singer saying that if Romney is elected, he'd have fund manager, something right? about the big – this is Elliot, you know, Vulture – 
you know, find the hedge fund guy saying, and he was one of the only people who really spoke. In 2016, there was in the Democratic Party more talk of that because you had the anger bubbling into, yeah. into uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and yeah. Elizabeth Warren and all that. But, and Trump was speaking about it too, only to, you know, to totally fill his cabinet with the, with the same people. Yeah. So, you know, my joke is, is that the Republicans and Democrats are the same. They both like to give money to their friends. They just have different friends. But they do have one friend in common, which is the financial sector. So they yes. take both sides it's to take care of it. It's bipartisan capture. Yeah. And it's bipartisan opportunity, too. So, you know, you have a situation in which Senator Sherrod Brown, who are among, who's among the best on this, uh, teamed up with the no longer, you know, Senator David Vitter of all. And you had a Brown-Vitter proposal to end too big to fail in which before it actually said anything to do, 99 senators unanimously decided uh, in uh, around 2013-14 to end too big to fail and end the subsidies of too big to fail. They'd, unanimous. And then, and then Brown and Vitter had a proposal to have 15% equity for the top banks. And it never got discussed. It was bipartisan from, uh, you know, a Democrat and a very right-wing Republican, and they could agree on that. So my question is, um, I want to re- restate your, your – um, I want to riff on your quote. It is difficult to get an economist to understand something when his what depends on it, not understanding it. His well, ego, I mean, his – Big shotness. Or is it, his consul- is it consulting? I can tell you. Is it consulting? It's some of that, yes. I can tell you that after the original, I sent three, uh, I organized three multi-signatory, you know, around 20 academics um, letters to Financial Times during 2010-11 before going down to write the book for a year and a half. Um, and the second one was uh, was related to allowing the banks to pay dividends, which depletes their equity, which is just the most outrageous, really, thing you could imagine. The equity is already there and they're paying it out, which, you know, before we, before, anyway, I organized this and I called, I mean, you know, I don't want to get personal about naming the person, but I can tell you two conversations I had with academics. <laughs> I'll, I'll suppress their names right now. Um, one was to um, a, an academic, a very prestigious colleague, um, who didn't sign the previous letter, but I thought would sign a letter that's very narrow on the payouts of to, to shareholders, who I know agrees with it, uh, the statement. And I said, uh, would you sign this letter? And he said to me, um, well, I have some paper going with uh, some people from City, I think it was. Uh, I'll get you somebody else to sign. I said, thank you, I already have people. I don't need your help. Yeah. Another one, uh, I... Uh, asked about this who knew for sure what is going on and knew for sure we were perfectly right. I asked, would you sign this letter? And um, he said, um, well, I would frame it a little bit differently. I said, okay, so you write your own letter then. Uh, Because it was in response to some nonsense that was being said. Um, Well, he didn't. Uh, but we have to face the possibility. Even right here, uh, would Hohenham and say perfunctory statements, but would not actually. And it was the same with the you know report written by you know fifteen academics called the Squam Lake that was hoeing and humming and making all kinds of really really uh, you know false uh, misleading statements about a lot of things that we took on in the book and elsewhere, and uh, they wanted you know their book uh, got endorsed by Ben Bernanke because it was just like you know we have these minor little general statements that don't go anywhere and don't criticize the system and you know um, we will only say this and not that and uh, it's it's that is not criminal and nobody goes to jail as you said for that but uh, you know you can the nonsense can live or the things you don't say um, you know, don't get you into, you know, as much trouble as challenging. I encourage listeners to go back. Uh, we'll put a link up to it, to the episode I did with Luis Singales on the fact that economists assume everyone is self-interested yep. except for themselves, yep. who are, of course, 
Just, we're with him on the capture. Yeah, yep. We're just subjective, uh, totally objective observers of what's yeah. good for the people of, yeah. in the world. Um, now, we do have to entertain the possibility, I think or not. I mean, you don't, but I do, and I think you should, that we might be wrong, uh, that their objections are legitimate and that the system is not nearly as uh, badly structured, structured as we think it is. Uh, so – so you said a statement in a textbook is wrong. There are a lot of things in textbooks that are wrong, but I, I think the, the crucial question is, is, is <laughs> do the people who, who don't – who are not willing to go to the ramparts, to the barricades um, – you know, for me, I'm just a talk show host of sorts, a podcast host who's I'm, – you know, I'm, not, I'm not in the halls of power. It's easy – it is easy for me to be critical um, – and I've often admitted that even though I think the bailouts were a mistake and the ones that preceded no, it I were a mistake. I actually don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I mean, we don't. We are agnostic about the bailouts. We just, uh, you know, we we say you shouldn't commit to things that would, you know, we just want to. We just want to learn the lessons. Fair enough. In which case, uh, do they just? Do you think there's a chance that the quote other side, the people who don't want to sign the letter, I'm not a letter signer. I probably wouldn't have signed it either. But even if I'd agreed with it, but there are a lot of people who would say, I just, I just think that's right. I think there are better ways to get it done. I think there are better well, ways. I challenged these people. I said to them, okay, so fine. You don't agree with that. I mean, I was, you know, in with staffers of, of the Fed when they kind of were, you know, reluctantly kind of meeting. And it was like, okay, you don't like my solutions. Ben Bernanke said that they, there's a too big to fail problem. So what's your solution to it? You know, you can tell me all day long that there is, you know, you can find, uh, you know, policymakers. It's, it's, they, when they say that they, you know, these companies can fail without harm, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's, that defies credibility. And so they, you know, then I find, I say, fine, you're saying, you know, oh, I'm worried they'll go to the shadow banking. I said, okay, so, well, you know, that whole shadow banking is, is, is a, a, a failure to enforce. So what do you propose to do? So in other words, they can sort of say unintended consequences and say all these things, but they're not proposing things to do. And by the way, about the wrong, you know, textbook and stuff, we're talking about things that we fail students in basic corporate finance for saying. So when I challenged some of the academics, I said, okay, wait a minute, are we teaching something wrong in the standard courses of finance or is the banking textbook wrong? And, you know, they would just like, you know, resign from an advisory board to a trade organization clearinghouse rather than challenge bank lobbying. I mean, sometimes they just would avoid doing that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm open to engaging with anybody and, and take the intellectual challenge. No problem. The problem is they, you know, the people just don't have real answers and then they just walk away. So I've been very disappointed with the level of engagement of the people who disagree. They just don't engage or they just change the subject or they just start saying, let's go and estimate the subsidies. I'm hmm. like, why do we estimate the subsidies if we can reduce them and we agree that they are distortive, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I have a uh, – my essay on the crisis, Gambling with Other People's Money, is coming out in a book form in, in January. So I've been forced to think about these issues again, and I decided not to change anything in that book. It was written in 2010. I, I wrote an introduction with some of the things I've learned, but – I haven't learned that much since 2010. I learned a lot between 2008 and 2010. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges you could make of my perspective, and the, it's the one I've been pushing here, it's, again, very similar to yours. One of the challenges would be, well, if, if, if things are so bad uh, and if too big to fail is still in place, which I believe it is and you believe it is, why have we not seen another crisis in 10 years? 10 years seems like a relatively long period of time. Mm -hmm. Why isn't there going – hasn't this implicit safety net, which I think is at the root of the problem, hasn't it – why hasn't it caused another crisis? Is, it, is there one that's uh, imminent? I'll tell, you. I'll tell you. Look, you can uh, – to me, it's really not about a crisis. To me, the system is bad every day. I mean, for example, I think the system is too bloated and you know just inefficient. So it's just it, – it, it extracts from the rest of the economy – for giving us the things we like, but there's reason to believe that this is not the most productive system we can have, that it just is, it, it's, so it doesn't have to go into crisis to see, it's, the crisis is when we see 
that it's wrong. A crisis is an inflection point. But the system is unhealthy every single day because there are loans that are made. There might be too much. There might be loans that are not made. All of these things are invisible about the the distortions of this system. So uh, I think a crisis is is not a system like this can can persist for a long time. And a crisis is just when, you know, it's, 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 it's as if you, you're burning your engine driving at 200 miles an hour and, you know, you might fall off the cliff, but you might make it, uh, you know, along just living dangerously. So I think we just live dangerously and, we, and we're lucky. Look, I start the presentation now by Jamie Dimon telling the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that he told his daughter, who was, I think, in elementary school, who asked him, you know, Daddy, what's a financial crisis? He said to her, uh, it's, it's just stuff that happens every three, five, seven, ten years. And so now I, when I talk about it, I say, oh, it's been ten years. So what is, where is it going to come from? And I give these headlines, indeed, that, you know, one is about CLO, one is about Italy, one is about cybersecurity. You know, the, the July 31st, 2017 financial time. The sequel to the financial crisis is here. Then we have, you know, um, the crisis is, is closer than you think. You know, you're going to have people saying the crisis is coming and then they're going to be heroes when it does come. But people are saying that Italy political crisis hits financial crisis. This is just not financial markets just now. So maybe it'll come from Italy, uh, from Eurozone imploding again or what something is, like what that. What is CLO? Is that what you said? CLO is a, is collateralized loan uh, obligations, which is a close cousin of CDO, collateralized debt obligation. In finance, you often just change the names, and it's the same thing. So CLO, CDO, it's they're basically the same. Collateralized loan obligations. That's the leveraged loans that I was discussing earlier. And so, you know, risky, you know, risky debt, uh, opaque, securitized, all of that. And, you know, the crisis will come from somewhere we don't know. And we're going to say, you know, oops, we didn't see it coming. But I think, again, focusing on crisis prevention alone is, is not, is not really where my problem is. What I noticed, and we are now running out of time to maybe talk too much about corporate governance is, I mean, you know, once you have a status where you can't fail, and this is true for a lot of large corporations in other industries too, kind of the so-called too big to jail, you know, I have only so much legal remedies when you break the law as a, as a large corporation producing things I like, uh, you know, you're above the law. We can't enforce laws on, uh, on corporations. So we see repeated, you know, recidivist, you know, corporate fraud or other or other bad practices and it can cause serious harm from opioids crisis to uh you know to to pollution to to other harms and uh which you know we are having uh, to other violations of other laws uh in a corporate context and so you know going back to corporate governance where i was 10 years ago and back to your question from the beginning about what's changed, I now think the biggest, you know, we have to re, rethink all kinds of basic things. You know, why are we allowing so much anonymity to shell corporations to evade the law? Why are corporations, you know, allowed, uh, you know, so many rights and so few responsibilities uh, in general? Why is there no accountability to, to top people, um, you know, in, in, in scandals such as, you know, Wells Fargo or, or, or you know, or, or others, or, or indeed, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals or other, and, and nobody ever goes to jail who, who was complicit or responsible for major harm to other people. So but for street crime, we incarcerate, you know, a huge fraction of the population. But when you're in a corporate executive, you get away with a lot of things. Yeah, I I think that well, that's a much bigger issue as you pointed yeah. out. But let me, let me raise and it is it is a concern uh, and it's a fascinating question to me of trade offs of as you say they quote they give us what we like and I would say more or less uh, sometimes they give us some things right, we don't like and yep uh, but I want addictive I wanna, or addictive things yeah. right. Well, addictive things are tougher issues for me because I, I, I'm a big believer in personal responsibility. But yeah. uh, they were some of those things were. But people don't know, you know, people didn't know how addictive opioids right. were. Well, they were sold Even in cigarettes. ways where they so were sold. Was, they hid the information. Yeah. They fused the FDA. Uh, so my, yeah, again, it's as, a formation problem. Well, we did a, a phenomenal um, interview with uh, Sam Quinones on Dreamland, his book, and I. I encourage people to read that book and I'll put a link to the book episode as well. But I'm going to close with a, with a, 
another criticism I sometimes get of my work, and I'm curious if you agree with it uh, and whether it applies to your work, which is, look, all these stories about what caused the crisis, the fact is people are just irrational. There's going to be bubbles in in financial decision-making because people get exuberant and irrationally exuberant, and you don't need too big to fail. You don't need any of these leverage issues to explain why sometimes financial markets blow up. So don't don't oversell that. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, you just gave the example of, you know, the internet bubble. I actually think that, you know, I give students during the internet bubble, I was teaching in the business school and we were asked how come, you know, they're worth so much without earnings or sometimes, you know, with tiny bit of earnings. And we do a, did an exercise of, you know, Fortunately, we chose eBay, which is sort of still around, and to try to rationalize the huge, you know, eBay selling for $130 with eight cents of earnings. You know, what does it take for growth projection and all that? And, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it's just very sensitive to assumptions. You know, if you project dividends to the end of time, even if you're, they're not paying dividends for the next 10 years, what the cash flow would be in perpetuity. And people, you know, can make mistakes about that, honestly, in terms of just assessing uncertainty for the future. So, yes, I'm I mean, obviously, assessing the future is difficult. And, you know, I'm, I'm from the field of finance, so I know um, and I've worked on information and how it gets into prices and all that early in my career. So I appreciate, you know, this stories about bubbles and, and, and mistakes and, and, and all of that. But then we go back to, you know, <laughs> protecting from the unknown unknowns and how easy and obvious that is to do in the context of, 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 of financial markets. You know, they'll say, oh, you know, there's going to be exuberance. Well, the exuberance is is in the context of, of these financial institutions is, is based on people's compensation structures and in and, and a chapter of our book that's called Paid to Gamble and, you know, to your gambling with other people's money. And the last chapter is called Other People's Money, which is about governance in general and, and, and everybody just being a little loose with other people's money and irresponsible, which is sort of a fundamental governance problem of the lack of trust. And so, you know, the issue is you you can – all of these things are true and may be true, and it doesn't change the fact that we don't have to suffer so much from these financial fragilities, that they are, you know, there because a few people benefit from them and all the rest are harmed. And, and the markets are failing to fix that, and therefore we need good, simple rules that would make a system kind of uh, correct the market failures and protect us from this – uh, recklessness, and so uh, you know, it, it, it's all no problem for 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 what I'm saying. Well, I wouldn't call it a market failure. I'd call it a government failure. Well, I mean, it's a market failure in that you put you put depositors in with bankers, and the depositors, uh, uh, you know, the the market for the kinds of contracts that depositors want, you know, is failing. The depositors are unable to monitor the the bankers, and and they, you know, they're fragmented and dispersed, and the banker has incentives to harm them, and they get away with harming them, and the outcome is inefficient. So the last paper just said, let's say fair banking is fundamentally inefficient, and that the government can help by creating effective commitment and taking the role of like a debt covenants for the depositors, which don't have good contracts for that. We just want to have the money in the ATM. So you can make a system more efficient when, when, when it, it can't kind of create the right commitments. So the issue is just the ability to commit through contracts and through markets. Markets do fail in banking. Banking is just, you know, to create an efficient outcome, basically. But my, my point is that I, maybe you don't agree with me, but that many of the problems that we've been talking about are the intervention of yeah. government uh, in the reward system that would exist on it, a, in, a mar in a real market. It, the original safety nets were meant to create stability. Okay, You created central bank to prevent pure liquidity problems from taking down a bank. Okay, pure panic. Okay, so now they have liquidity support. We enacted all these safety nets uh, because the system was too fragile on its own. But now that we created the safety nets, we forgot to accompany them with a correction to counter the, the even worse incentives that they create, that the safety net create. So my solution is, yes, you can have safety net to a point, but then you have to make an efficient, effective, uh, you know, 
counter to the incentives that get created. Some of these incentives would be there with less safe fare, and these incentives get only worse when we try to fix the system with these interventions that you don't like. So I, my position is a little more nuanced there, therefore. I say that, you know, to a point you want the, you know, the government to, you know, uh, do to provide certain things and certain protections and and then at the same time to not allow the abuse of those of those uh of those systems and and that's what you definitely what banking you know needs um instead what you have is the politics of banking only distorts it further so you know and when we do and I, and you know I speak to to that in my slides, which are you know all public, and I can send you links to a lot of them. I summarize the politics of banking, which is where the politicians uh, see banks as a source of funding for whatever it is they like, and not a source of risk. You know, banks are where the money is, as their robber said. You know, when asked why they robbed the bank, it's a kind of lame joke, but it's very no, it's deep. True, it's really Sutton's line, <laughs> and it's uh, he was onto something. Yep. My guest today has been Anad Admadi, and Anad, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.